Take out the papers and the trash. Drop them around it, or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't scrub that kitchen floor, you ain't gonna walk around no more. Yakety yak, don't come back. Clean up your room. I bet that in that room. Get all that garbage out of sight. Or you won't go out Friday night. Yakety yak, don't talk back. If you don't clean it up your room, get out that busted in that room. If you don't garbage out of sight. I can hear you Don't talk back. Breaking rocks in the hot sun. And I fought the law and the law won. Well, I'm gonna raise a pussy and I'm gonna raise a holler. By working all day just to try to earn a dollar. Well, I called my congressman. He said, quote, really? I'd like to set you some, but you're too young to vote. Sometimes I wonder what I'm going to do, because there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Oh, yeah, my mom and papa told me, son, you got to earn some money. If you want to hit the car and move, drive it next Sunday. Didn't go to work, told the boss I was sick. Well, you can't use a car because you didn't work a lick. Sometimes I wonder what I'm going to do because there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Hello. Having solved the uh, audio problems, I think, permanently. I think I have permanently solved the audio problems. Uh, I clicked the thing on OBS, and it seemed to have fixed it. Uh, but now here I am, bereft of insight, a hollow shell of a man, a husk, a... Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, a... Yeah, at the end of my usefulness, I guess, anything. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just want to have a chat, even though I have nothing in my head right now. It's empty. It's it's a sanded and objectless surface, my head. It's empty. There's nothing in there. I got nothing. I have nothing in my head at all. Got nothing. Why is everyone talking about this stupid fucking balloon? Is this seriously? Is it just, are we all thinking about Balloon Boy? Is that what's going on here? Is everyone thinking about Balloon Boy and how much fun Balloon Boy was? Balloon Boy was maybe the first, okay, this is an interesting conjecture. Was Balloon Boy the first social media event? Because Balloon Boy happened in, I think, 2012, right? Which is right around the time that social media 
reaches its efflorescence as a thing that people are engaged in beyond the peripheries, the fringes, the most terminally uh, uh, computer-addled. Like, regular people start going, oh, what's this thing? Oh, hey, I can, I can find out what other people are up to and swap ideas and, and, and give people memes. Oh, nine? Okay. That's earlier than I thought. That actually is it, though. That's, like, ground zero. That might be a little too early, honestly. If it wasn't... It, 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 but I think it might have been, like, the first social media event before you get, like... Because it takes, like, four years to get, like, the real thing. Because, you know, it had to be after the... Um, after the crisis, the 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 uh, economic oh eight oh nine crisis ended. I mean, when we we get our fake recovery, you know, like uh, the the reality of like permanent quantitative easing to replace any actual attempt at uh, you know changing the economic structure. And it's in that context that social media, as we know it, blows up. So is a little early then. So I guess you would call it prefigurative. But people sure did go crazy for that fucking balloon boy who wasn't actually in the balloon. And I believe his parents were like on a reality show too. This does raise the question then, what is the first mature social media event? Somebody says it's when Kim K's butt broke the internet. I don't know. That feels too self-conscious. Like they're tr they literally said breaks the internet in the the thing. That seems like it's a little too uh, on the nose. I feel like the, 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 it would have to be a little more organic than that. I've heard that there's a uh, some degrowth communism book that's like the best-selling book in Japan, which is totally fitting since Japan has been doing degrowth for the last 30 years. Japan's been doing degrowth since the early 90s. They even though they're still, you know, the pachinko parlor weird futurist country, they econ economy has been like ever since the late early 90s. Uh Abe, RIP uh, did some of his own uh, quantitative easing style stuff, Abenomics, to pump the prime of the pump a little bit, but um, it's been basically flat for 30 years. So if any country is going to get on board the degrowth trend, it's going to be Japan. They know what that's about. I mean, apparently you can go into Japan Japanese stores and like buy VHSs. Like they have, they have analog technology for sale that people buy. The degrowth country. Coney 2012. I guess that was it, wasn't it? It's too obvious an answer, but at the same time, what else are you going to pick? It's got to be the, the year is right because that's the thing. 2012 is the year. That's why I wanted, in my head, I wanted Balloon Boy to have been 2012. So I guess it was Coney 2012. And Coney, by the way, still out there. It's amazing. People want to make everything on Twitter to be a psyop. They want social media to be this haven of psyops. All of these perfectly calibrated government interventions in the mind space to get certain outcomes. And yet, none of those outcomes have actually come about. They didn't get Coney. Uh, we didn't send peacekeepers into the DRC. 
yeah, we're in Japan, we're in uh, Africa, in the Horn and in Western Africa, uh, in the in the Sahel, but not because of any social media push, not because of any memes. Because the PSYOP is not any discrete incident or discrete set of symbols within the social media matrix. It's the social media matrix itself. That's it. That's it. It is the illusion of forward progress. It is the illusion of momentum. It is the illusion of sociality, of the internet, that does the work of psyoping us. Because it doesn't matter what our opinions are on anything. As long as we have an avenue to express them, to send that energy out, and, and, and it is into this ether where everything is just captured and then processed by pre-selected groups by, as, as content to be chosen or ignored by people who are looking to build a psychic world then it doesn't matter. It, has, it doesn't matter at all what our discrete opinions on anything are. It's about what, our, uh, what we do with those opinions. And the only thing we can do with them is what we do, what we're all doing, what I'm doing. What we, I think things like 20, Coney 2012 really are is just people being literally driven insane, just like QAnon is, by the, by the illusory potential of the internet. What, taking the internet at, on its face seriously. If you take the internet on its face seriously, then yeah, it is a place where discrete ideas and movements can have incredible revolutionary potential. And pursuing that idea will drive you off a fucking cliff. The, tw the Coney 2012 guy is a perfect example. He ended up going insane on bath salts and jacking off nude on a highway in San Diego. Um, that's why it's just funny. This or that group is going to try. They're trying to get us to war with China. They're, they're, they're trying to normalize a new Cold War or a new escalation with China. That's built in. The U.S. will have some sort of escalating conflict with China. Who knows where it reaches its tipping point. I mean, maybe we are able to establish some sort of uh, new Cold War deal that is advantageous to both sides and provides a new platform, you know, for a new uh, uh, bipolar world order. People talk about multipolarity, but nobody really wants multipolarity because what is multipolarity but the situation that you had in Europe in 1914? Nobody wants a genuine situation of multiple 
medium-sized powers competing with one another on a global framework, because that is global war. It has to be. Now, two big powers, mutually assured with a mutually assured destruction situation, that can be managed as the Cold War was. I will go back to Letterboxd if Twitter actually does end up dying. I just, I don't want to, I, I don't need more fucking social media in my life, basically. I'm already fucked enough. I don't want to make it worse. Although, I did uh, see Plane. I saw the meme movie Plane with Gerard Butler, which uh, I gotta say, uh, delightful. The kind of movie that you that they increasingly don't make. Just a solid, tight, 95-minute like movie. Uh, solid action scenes where you can actually see what's happening. Uh, and I gotta say, if they were using, if they weren't using squibs in that movie, if they were using CGI for the blood hits, then they're, that's some of the best CGI blood I've yet seen in a movie. There's a couple of shots in there that it's like, I don't know, man, that had to have been squibs. And if not, then... I fucking bow to them for uh, for busting that one out because I did not think it was possible. And one of the best things about it is that it's got the coolest thing you can have in an action movie, in my opinion, which is a Barrett 50 caliber sniper rifle. There's this, towards the end of the movie, There's they're, they're, these mercs are unloading their gear and this one dude busts out a Barrett and I'm looking at it like, oh, oh, and then sure enough, a little later on, just blowing guys away through, like, engine blocks. You can't beat it. It's wonderful. And they let, uh, they let Gerard Butler do the Scottish accent. They let him be Scottish for once, which I'm sure he appreciated. Although I, it's actually pretty interesting. He has, like, kind of a half-assed Scottish accent now. It's almost like trying to not do it for so long has warped it. Charlie human style into this weird hybrid accent. So yeah, thumbs up for playing very, very encouraging to see that that kind of movie can still get a theatrical release. Now I got to see knock at the cabin. Don't spoil it. Uh, one of the one of the finest film minds of the current era, a guy named Lex G, who's a locked account on Twitter, uh, pointed out that uh, he he kind of has a hard time dis dis distinguishing M Night Shyamalan from Jordan Peele. And I'm like, I read that, and I'm like, thank you, because I think that those guys are very similar. And one thing that they have in common is that neither one of them should direct their own scripts; they should be directors for hire. Because whatever the hell they're trying to do with their scripts almost never comes together. But they're decent. They have decent visual styles. They have decent eyes. And we really got to blame Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino and the 90s people for getting it into people's head that you can't be a great director unless you write your own material. Almost none of the greatest directors wrote their own stuff. 
Very few. Spielberg doesn't write his own shit. Hitchcock didn't write his own shit. They should just find a, a, a good young screenwriter and make their own damn movies. Ryan Johnson shouldn't do anything, honestly. I mean, I've never gotten anything out of his visual style either, in addition to me finding his uh, screenplays just uh, increasingly obnoxious. I got to say, I've never liked a Ryan Johnson movie. Everyone went crazy for Brick, and I watched it, and I'm like, okay, yeah, they're, they're kids doing, like, uh, gangster voices. What else? And then I was deeply disappointed by Looper, which I had been very much looking forward to seeing. And, you know, The Last Jedi, whatever. It stinks. I'm sorry. I, I'm, it's not because I'm a... I think my uh, non-Gamergate-type uh, guy bona fides are well-established by this point. It's just overlong and bad. And, yeah, it's the opposite of Return of the Jedi, which is still Return of the Jedi. Just, but if you just, if you just do the opposite of what is expected, you know, Re Return of the Jedi uh, uh, rehash... I'm sorry, uh, Empire Strikes Back. If you are just doing the opposite of an Empire Strikes Back remake, then you're still remaking Empire Strikes Back. Knives Out was okay. I didn't hate it. I enjoyed watching it. Uh, but it was fine. Fine, capital, small f, fine, was as, as, as much as I'm going to go with Knives Out. And then Glass Onion is just genuinely obnoxious. I have to say, though, uh, Copaganda, I like it. I, uh, there are plenty of things that are Copaganda that I enjoy. Something being Copaganda, whatever the hell that means, is not going to make me not like it. That is not going to ever make me not want to, will not like a movie, is if it makes cops look good. If you want film, if you want film in general to not make cops look good, then you're looking for the, you're looking at the wrong, uh, 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 artistic medium. I mean, cinema and and its uh, mutant stepchild television, they they privilege action. They privilege uh, uh, positions of, of of command and authority, because that is where drama and narrative reside. So the figure of the police officer is going to be an incredibly fa fascinating one for the for the camera, and and it's going to be impossible, almost impossible, to detach uh, that character from some sort of sympathetic world that they're embodying and they're in, in, in fish enmeshed in. Like it, it's almost like all of the attempts to critically diagnose contemporary media end up letting contemporary media off the hook because you really are implying when you criticize things like propaganda, you're implying that there is some sort of liberatory non-reactionary cinema or television 
when in fact, no, the the the, the forms themselves reaffirm uh, these structures. The thing is, though, is that these structures are separate from the way that these structures, as imagined in narrative, are separate from their social form, their social function. I would say that, like Law and Order, the Law and Order franchise specifically is another. It's an extra version. It's like it's so. And the thing, like those network procedurals, have a more specific uh, agenda. But again, that's what you're going to see on television. There is no other version of police shows that are going to be on even streaming television. I don't think you have to condemn any form as fascist. Again, what does this mean at this point in history? What does fascist mean at this point in history? When we are depoliticized, when we don't have political subjectivity that can be socially magnified, when all of our political subjectivity only bleeds off, leaving us to enact our zombie-like adherence and abeyance to capitalism's demands. I think you just need to engage with it with the understanding that none of it is going to change anything. That they are the shadows on the wall that we, we absorb. That it is the circuit, it's the cultural circuit that matters, not any discrete element within it. Same thing with the internet. Do I have a favorite prosthesis of a historical figure? The one that I have had in my head the longest is Peter Stuyvesant's peg leg. I've talked about this last week about how apparently the kids today don't learn about Peter Stuyvesant, but he's one of like 10 historical figures that I remember from uh, like elementary school history and social studies. With his, because it, it was, he had gold bands around the peg leg. Rasputin did not have a prosthetic dick, they just cut it off after he died. That's not the same thing. Tycho Brahe's uh, tin nose is good. That is the same Stuyvesant that they named the uh, Stuyvesant houses after, yes, in Manhattan. Peter Falk did have a glass eye, as did Sandy Duncan. Sammy Davis Jr. and Big Bill Haywood. 
Uh, Big Bill Haywood, who was a leading figure in the IWW and uh, the uh, Socialist Party and uh, the uh, early minors unions in the West, uh, he had a he had a glass eye, and he would imply in speeches that he got it in the course of his life as a toiler, because he was a guy who had spent a life, you know, as an actual laborer. He was not an intellectual. He used to say. Uh, I haven't read Marx's Capital, but I have the marks of capital all over my body. But in actuality, uh, he lost his eye because when he was a kid, he was whittling a stick and he accidentally stabbed himself with his knife in the eyeball. Gotts von Berlichen's uh, Iron Hand, also good. I mean, it makes somebody saying uh, that the piracy, the golden age of piracy is happening at the same time. We don't really talk about it uh, on the show. Uh, but we could do a whole fucking uh, subsidiary uh, series on how piracy forms out of this, like Caribbean Caribbean piracy, the Golden Age piracy is is born out of the 17th century crisis, because that is one of the things you could do instead of uh, submit yourself to this machine of annihilation is to opt out and just uh, go out and steal some shit, especially since you could get at least some sort of legal protection. If you could get a, a letter of Mark uh, and become a privateer, that meant that you could be a pirate and there could still be uh, ports open to you where you wouldn't have to worry about getting strung up. Does everyone does anyone know if the chi this balloon is Chinese or are they just saying it's Chinese? How would you know? Are they tracking it? Did they see it get released in China and they've been watching it come across the Pacific? It's got like uh it's got like is it shaped like a dragon? Oh, so if China has apologized for it. They said, my bad. So wait a minute. It was, oh, okay. They're saying it's a weather instrument. Okay. I mean, probably. Would you say, is that a good spy mechanism? I mean, it seems like it does the opposite of uh, everything that espionage is supposed to do, which is primarily about doing things secretly. Anyway, as you can tell, I have not been following the Chinese balloon story, and I just do not give a shit. I absolutely cannot care.
seems like some people, like with everything else, they're hoping it's going to cause a nuclear war. They're scared of it, but they actually want it to happen. Like people want all of this to fall apart one way or the other so that they have to get, they don't have to live in this agonized tension. People want finality. And I think that uh, the essence of maturity, really, if there is anything to it, is coming to terms with that tension and living within it and accepting it. Uh, and the uh, movement towards politics, and specifically radical or esoteric politics, is an attempt to push beyond that, is an attempt to try to find some psychic escape from the ambiguous tension of just like living at the uh, in the thrall of forces beyond your control. But I think we're finding now uh, in the aftermath of 2020 and everything else, and certainly the aftermath of the 2022 midterms, at least for me, a realization that the pool of people who are drawn to the political uh, as an escape valve is limiting, self-limiting. And uh, I think a number of people are going to realize that what they really want, especially the people who have decided to become uh, uh, reactionary radicals, uh, they're going to find that the system as is is going to give them what they want. Like uh, the, the performance of politics is just to distance himself from the full implications of what that is, because it's also going to give them everything they don't want. But those two things are inextricably linked. The nightmare and the, uh, the fantasy of annihilation, the nightmare of being, of, of being dominated by the other, in one form or another, and the fantasy of dominating the other are both contained within uh, capitalists' death spiral, capitalism's death spiral. I've not seen Family Guy in 20 years, probably. Yeah, so the jobs report came out, and it's 500,000 jobs. I don't know, man. You got, you got the... Uh, Federal Reserve just mashing the recession button as crazily as it can because that's the only only lever it has to do anything about inflation. But inflation does seem to be coming down anyway, even though jobs have not come down yet, like employment hasn't come down. It doesn't feel like anybody knows what the fuck is going on.
And I, the least of all me. I mean, I've been sitting over here like cringing, waiting for a huge 2008-style economic crash to happen for like the last six months, and it, it's nowhere in sight. So this is all, and, and of course, my my waiting for that was part of that very same fear slash desire for a paradigm rupturing event. And what I'm trying to come to terms with is that I uh, maybe that'll happen, but I cannot. Uh, I cannot continue to assume it's going to happen or, or, or sit in kind of paralyzed expectation. I, I just have to keep moving forward. I mean, the thing is, is of course, we are in the middle of a paralyzing rupturing, par, uh, paradigm rupturing event. The problem is, is that you don't get a new paradigm until later. And nobody is going to be able to recognize the paradigm shift until it has already occurred. So we're sort of cursed to live through a breach without getting any of the catharsis that living through a breach is in our minds, that we imagine we would be able to uh, uh, enjoy. The, the compensation for the uh, the tumultuous and agonizing times. So I'm just trying to live. And right now that means uh, trying to find a new project now that uh, Hell of Presidents is largely done. We have it, We have to do the interviews for the uh, auxiliary episodes. We're going to be doing those in the next month. Those will come out at the end of the series, which I'm very glad we're doing because I know I know that as people are listening to the pods, I'm sure there's stuff that they're like, wait a minute, you know, I would, what about this? And what about like stuff that they, we don't really have time to go through? And I'm hoping that these... Uh, Episodes will, the auxiliary episodes will fill in those gaps. I, the menu is okay. It needed to be more perverse, in my opinion. It needed to go. It needed to get more sick. It needed to go more sicko mode. It's it's in that that neither fish nor fowl uh, genre slash like issues movie limbo. Uh, someone says, can you talk more about the Italian wars? We're going to be talking to the war nerd about the Italian wars and the entire military revolution in one of the subsidiary episodes. So there you go.
Uh, somebody asked about Parasite. I don't know if I've said this before, but I saw Parasite in the theater after everyone was cre- creaming themselves, and I was like, what? This is this is just another overlong Korean movie that I don't really like that much. It was okay. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was robbed at the Oscars that year. There's an AI YouTuber, a VTuber, whatever the fuck. Of course there is. I didn't know that, but of course. What do they do? What do they talk about? Everyone talks about the nice guys, and I wish I loved the nice guys. It's just every scene feels like it's almost getting to a point of being really good, and then it just doesn't do it. So it uses the chat thing to reply to chat messages and then just plays a video game with AI. That's awesome. What does it look like? What is the like? What's the face? Is it is it? Does it look like Max Headroom? Does it look like a human? Does it have a bunch of fingers? It looks like an anime girl. What a shot! The scene where Ryan Gosling punches the window and cuts his hand, cuts his thing, and has to go to the hospital. That's very good. That's my favorite part. Yeah, I think of that the same way I think of uh, Inherent Vice, which is another movie where I'm like all the way on the film side. I'm leaning forward. I'm waiting for that click, and then it just doesn't come. And I know that with Inherent Vice, that's like the point. But okay, it's that's not working for me. People were posting the Babylon ending montage. And in context, I don't know. In context, it wasn't bad. Watching in the theater, I kind of liked it. Because it is, the movie is about, you know, the death of cinema. So it makes sense that it does, gives you this DMT, you know, uh, look back at this thing. And then, you know, the, collapse into uh, unstructured sight and sound. Under the Silver Lake is great. Wonderful film. Uh, 
definitely uh, one of the top movies to watch if you want to understand the uh, crisis of masculinity in the post-2009 uh, world. The, 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 uh, the, everybody who's decided to become a fucking uh, conspiracy researcher on the internet is perfectly represented in this movie. And I got to say that uh, the fact that Babylon like was a big bomb really does put the button on the entire thing. It's a little ribbon. So this is interesting. Somebody says, what's good about Tarantino? And I understand the case against him. Uh, but I think the reason that he is not what his critics say he is, is because, yes, vapid child brain, regurgitating a lifetime of, uh, of consuming pop culture crap. Absolutely. But his formal rigor... Like the way that he, he 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 conceives of shoot scenes, paces his films, is like a counterpoint to the content in every way. Like it's it's this and it's that contrast between this yeah juvenile, baby brained, uh, pop culture addicted. Uh, uh, creative toolbox uh, in a container of like very rigorous uh, uh, and non-indulgent for the most part. Like there's a couple scenes where he just like lets rip, but he does not give you the sort of easy indulgent catharsis that the cinema that he's riffing on is based on. And that, that is an interesting counterplay and it, and the, the contrast between those things makes his movies interesting to watch. Like take Inglorious Bastards, for example, which I think is up there with his best films, maybe his best movie. Uh, he's riffing on these, you know, World War II men on a mission movies like uh, Dirty Dozen and, uh, and the original Italian Inglorious Bastards, and, you know, Where Eagles Dare and Guns and Navarone and all that stuff. And it doesn't have any of the shit that those movies had. It does. It has almost none of the set piece uh, uh, action moments and beats that those movies had. Half the movie is spent with this uh, Jewish French broad running a fucking uh, uh, movie theater. So yes, it's like it's it's pastiche, but it is corralled within this like weirdly because the thing is he's he didn't just watch all the crap he also watched a lot of good movies a lot of you know artistic films and so there's like this conscious and subconscious working together to produce this thing that uh, is at the very least 
just narcotically entertaining. But I think the reason that Inglorious Bastards is, my, is, is one of my favorites of his is because it does move beyond pastiche to self-awareness, to look back on like the, the psychic implications of, of film viewership, collective, specifically theatrical collective film experience, uh, and its contribution to you know, the creation of uh, national and political narratives. That's actually very interesting. So is he, did he just say this thing? He said he's going to do a John Brown biopic. He says, uh, he said he's going to do a million things. He said he was going to do a, a Star Trek movie. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. And yes, he does. He does the same thing. Thank you. He does the same thing with Inglorious Bastards. Uh, he does the same thing in Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, talking about like you know the the. Uh, the American Dream Factory, which is not coincidentally part of why that is another one of his very best films. It's very fun. God, Tarantino doing a John Brown movie. That's so funny. Just the reason it's the reason I can't get mad at it is again, you got this white kid who grew up with black culture fetishizing it the way that uh the way that generations of young white men did. Uh, and then that fetishization turning into this, you know, desire to affirm uh, solidarity uh, with uh, black people in a way that only John Brown in American history really does embody. So of course you're going to make the John Brown movie where he's a badass killing on behalf of uh, black people which he already really riffed on in Django Unchained with the, Unchained with the character of, uh, of uh, Dr. King, hilariously named Dr. King Schultz. But I thought that Django, which I also like, I like all of his movies, uh, is interesting because, again, he gets a little beyond the, the, the wish fulfillment and the pastiche and a little reflective because in that movie, you've got... The situation, spoiler alert, but you should have seen it by now. Uh, they go to the plantation to try to trick Candy into giving over uh, Django's wife. And they, they figure him out, and they force him to sign to pay like full, pri full freight for her. But they have the money, so they're going to make the deal. And then he's like, you got to shake my hand. Uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's like, you got to shake my hand. And he goes to shake his hand, and of course he does the, the gun, boom, blows him away. And then he just turns to Django and he goes, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist before getting killed. And then, you know, Django's got to kill all those guys, and he's got to escape from the Australians, including hilariously Quentin Tarantino, go back and save his wife. Uh, and that all happens just because Dr. King Schultz is too self-centered, too conceited, too fixated on affirming his superiority to the other white people around him that he fucks up this chance to save this guy's wife. He, he condemns them in effect to death out of a selfish need to be better than other white people. If he was really going to be an ally, he would have just taken it on the chin, shook the guy's hand and gotten out of there. 
So that makes me interesting to see how he would take something that reads much more as just pure indulgence, like a John Brown biopic, and complicates it. I mean, I would, I'm not going to not watch it. That would never happen. Uh, Michael Shannon, by the way, if, you're, if you've got casting ideas, Quentin, and you, you don't listen to this, but if anyone knows him, get it to him. Michael Shannon as John Brown, please. And it's not just because, you know, he's a stentorian badass. It's because he has played people with, like, uh, non-sane degrees of certainty about their world. Like, have anyone seen Bug? A little uh, William Friedkin movie based on a Tracy Letts play. <coughs> Take Shelter is another good example. Because if you do... To do John Brown well, you don't make him just a righteous, uh, uh, you know, uh, font of virtue. You don't just make him a raving maniac. You have to uh, convey that he genuinely was insane. Like, if, if, if our, given what we understand historically, what does it mean to be insane? What is insanity? Uh, he was in that he was living in another world than everyone else around him. But the world he was living in is one that accords to deeper truths than were applicable or are understandable at the time. If I, if I want to do a thing about John Brown, it would not be about John Brown specifically. It would be a part of some old history uh, 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 uh. I honestly don't think it would be straight art, alt history. It would have to be alt, uh, like an old history premise like threaded through something else uh, where John Brown uh, hooks up with Karl Marx after he moves to Texas, which is something that he was very much considering doing in the 1840s. But if you're going to do a straight John Brown thing, instead of doing a biopic, which is bad, uh, I think you do a, a keyhole segment in the life. I feel like that is the best way to, to convey any kind of story about a historical figure. It's not to do any kind of long-range biopic. It's a incident or like a, a constrained era within someone's life. Uh, and I think that for John Brown, I think I might end it with the Osawatomie Massacre, which is really when he decides to take uh, take the plunge into like 
violent opposition to slavery, which before he had not really done. Although, man, it would also be something to do with a movie that was just about Kansas, because there's some wild shit in there. Like, he's getting into these massive shootouts with, uh, like, huge detachments of of uh, pro-slavery militiamen to the point where he just can show up on a battlefield, show up in a conflict, and the other side will literally just run away. But, you know, that's indulgent power. That's indulgent fantasy for a liberal contemporary audience. They get to watch that and be like, that's me. It is wild how few things there are about uh, Bleeding Kansas in popular culture. The only really thing, the only real thing about uh, about the Harper's Ferry Raid is the movie The Santa Fe Trail, which is from the 50s, where John Brown's the bad guy, and Errol Flynn and Ronald Reagan play George Custer and P- George Pickett, I think. The John the and the the um, the Ethan Hawke show I've said before I really did not like. It got a little better as it went along, but it the whole tone was wrong, and uh, Hawke's performance was uh, kind of embarrassing. It, it it was it was far too self-aware of its moment and and it, it had to it was compelled to make him into kind of a funny crazy person like humorously crazy uh because you know you have to diffuse that uh religious element that the popular contemporary audience can't process and i honestly think that would be the most interesting thing about a tarantino john brown movie how would he handle the religiosity I haven't seen Clerks 3 yet. I should. I've, I've seen uh, too many J- uh, Kevin Smith movies. I was born at exactly the right period to get Kevin Smith full in the face. So I saw Clerks 2, for example. I, 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 I tapped out a while ago, but it's way too many to have seen. And I should definitely see Clerks 3, even though I'm sure it's terrible. That, that uh, Jay and Silent Bob rebooted thing was unwatchable. Everybody has a heart attack in the movie? Well, write what you know. Didn't he have like a massive heart attack and almost die? Well, the thing is, is that Kevin Smith was ruined, like many artists are, by success. Like his, he got successful by writing his life, which was being a fucking uh, cashier type loser in, uh, in New Jersey. But once you're in Hollywood, you gotta write other stuff, and he didn't know anything about that.
I mean, you don't have to be ruined by that experience if you challenge yourself. And I think that Kevin Smith did challenge himself. If you see the movies he made after he got big, he's trying different forms, different ideas. He's getting ambitious. Like Dogma, even though it's pretty dumb, is like this ambitious attempt to cap to challenge to uh, tackle religious questions. Uh, uh, he made that Jersey Girl. Like he tried to make like a a studio romantic comedy type thing. Uh, and they were uh, mostly bad, and people told him they sucked, and he decided, well, fine, fuck you, I'll just play with my toys. Like you hit, you hit your point, you hit your sweets, you hit your limit of talent, and then you have to deal with it. And I gotta say, just deciding to have make movies with your friends, you know, it doesn't matter that they're bad if you're having a good time and your dwindling audience still likes them. There's worse things to do with your time. I mean, he never learned to direct is the thing. He never learned how to actually move a camera around. And that's what he should have been focusing more on than the content. I was only in San Francisco for like a day. I, I, I did not have time to, to hang around, sadly. It is, it is probably the prettiest American city in its layout. I don't know how you beat that. The hills next to the bay, that's really hard to beat. But, you know, filled with uh, text gum. Seattle, I've been to Seattle. Seattle's very pretty. You've got the sound. But I don't know, man, those hills. Like, I, I was just, I was, in a, I was in the cab driving downtown. And just, just driving into the city, you've got all the stuff, the hills, man. Come on. I like, one thing I enjoy in a city, and, and uh, you get them more on the West Coast than anywhere else, is, uh, is a uh, vertical geography. L.A. has that, too, to an extent. Vancouver is very pretty. Like, you can't... The East West Coast cities, just as, as natural environments, are... I don't know. No one can compare to, compare to them, in my opinion, in 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 the continent. I do think LA is actually very pretty, because of that 
because the fact that you see fucking hills, you see, you see an, uh, a a geographic assertion, and then people build around it. Ugliest city? That's a good question. I haven't obviously been to everyone. I've been to a good number of cities, though. I mean, Indianapolis is hard to argue for, just like the state of Indiana. Detroit is sparked. There's too much pathos in Detroit for it to be ugly, honestly. Like, as gross as it is, it's it's uh, it stirs the heart in a way. I've never been to Jacksonville. I've heard it's hell on earth. Uh, I haven't been to Phoenix either, which is another one that makes me feel like uh, it would be an absolute nightmare. Philadelphia is pretty ugly. Now that I think about it, of East Coast cities. Baltimore, too. I don't know. I like Cleveland. I have a soft spot for Cleveland. Cleveland's like Milwaukee. Like those pure, strained Rust Belt cities speak to me, especially anything that's on Lake Michigan. If you have the lake, you have a something going for you. If you've got the fucking lake there, you have a, a timeless horizon. Pittsburgh is beautiful. Love Pittsburgh. And you want to talk about a physical geography. Those two fucking slopes coming down to the peninsula between the three rivers? Get out of here. I like Las Vegas, but you cannot, it is an eyesore. Like, it is genuinely offensive and abrasive to look at. But the one thing that is good about it is that there are uh, like nearby hills and, like, small mountain ranges near it, which I really do enjoy because that is, like, the, uh, the glow, that's the, the, the the clock the clock of the earth like just ticking just you know reminding you of your of, of the short time that a abomination like Las Vegas could possibly exist on the earth It's like when uh when they would do a a tr- uh, tr- um when they would do a triumph in in ancient Rome and some guy would come back from you know defeating the Gauls and they they'd have the big parade uh, through the city. He'd be riding his chariot. He'd have a slave sitting, standing next to him uh, just to tell him and say in his ear, you are mortal. You're mortal. And uh, in Las Vegas, those fucking hills that you can see from the street are, are that voice. Like, this is not going to last. Chicago, once again, you got Lake Michigan. You got a lot there if you got Lake Michigan. It's got some nice neighborhoods. But I don't know. I'll always have some... I'll I'll never be able to fully embrace anything about Illinois being from Wisconsin. 
even though it's dumb and tribal. The the Midwest is the American Balkans, you know? So we take that shit seriously. We've talked about that on the stream before. Yes, Chicago is Dubrovnik. Correct. I think we tried to go through this before. I can't really get it to map out. But all I know is that Ohio is Serbia. The rest of it, I don't know. I do want to come to Toronto. I've only been to Vancouver and Canada. I wanted We want to do a Canadian tour, and I think we will try to do that this coming year, in 2023. We'll see. I want to go to, I definitely want to go to Quebec. I want to go to Montreal. Want to go? I want to even see the prairies. I want to see the the hell the hell dimension of Canada. Arkansas is not the Midwest. Arkansas is a southern state. What are you talking about? Missouri isn't even the Midwest. Get out of here. Oh, I've played GeoGuessr. I am no good at it. I don't know any of the tricks that make people like Michael Hudson good at it. Uh, Someone says, which Ohio city is Belgrade? Columbus, the capital. Because it's, because Belgrade is uh, notoriously ugly and Columbus is the least visually enticing city uh, of the big three C cities in Ohio. Cleveland and Cincinnati are both much more, uh, much better looking than, than Columbus. Missouri, St. Louis has like an exemption. St. Louis is like, uh, it's like Kaliningrad, you know, like that's part of Russia, but it's not connected to Russia and it's surrounded by Lithuania or whatever. St. Louis is the Midwest, but the rest of Missouri, I'm sorry, it's a border state. No state that had slavery in 1860 can be in the Midwest. I'm sorry. Canada is to America what Scotland was to the English Empire. And not a coincidence, a huge percentage of the Anglo settlers in Canada are Canadian. I always think it's funny. Just look at the cast of the of, uh, Kids in the Hall. You've got a McKinney, a McDonald, and a McCullough. They got the Scots and America got the Irish, basically. Because the Irish wanted to get the fuck out of the United Kingdom and its dominion.
Well, the Irish ended up in New England. That's a east to west type situation. The French are indeed the Irish of Canada. But they got their own area, which is interesting. Whereas the Irish sort of had to uh, share power. They weren't able to create they were they were able to create like parallel institutions as opposed to just like dominate cultural institutions. If they'd like turned Boston into like a Quebec type deal, it's interesting. Would there have been like a quiet revolution in the sixties? I guess we had a quiet revolution. It was the fucking it was forced busing. I do marvel at any of the separatist movements in, in the Western countries at this point, like Quebec, Scotland, Catalonia, even Irish unification. What are you getting out of it? There's only one authority, and it's transnational. I mean, Ireland really did just, you know, give sovereignty from London to Brussels by joining the EU the way they did. And now they're just a fucking uh, parking lot for American finance uh, tech capital. I don't know. Unless your plan for uh, independence is like uh, Cambodian style uh, autarky, like yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be an independent Catalonia, and also we're gonna make all of our own stuff, and we're not gonna depend on any fucking exports or imports, and we're gonna use our own uh, our own system of like coupons and ration books, and we're gonna be a collective social enterprise. All right, go for it. Good luck. I wish you well. But if you're just going to be like, I'm, we're independent, but we're also still depending on the same capital flows that we always have, then what the fuck are you getting? What are you getting out of it? In the case of Catalonia, it's literally, I don't have to pay taxes for those lazy Galatians anymore.
Like in that respect, the only like really, uh, the only separatist movements that have any juice are the ones where like they're gonna you know impose like a Q Imperium, like Wexit, or like Eastern Washington or something. Like that is that's na- that is a uh, that's national suicide. Like that's that is taking the bull by the horns because really all we're seeing now in this play between right and left on the international stage and in the national go- politics is two pe- two groups of people who know at some level that we are circling a drain towards annihilation. And when I, not that we're all going to die, not that humanity is going to die out, but that our understanding of what it is to be human will be annihilated. And the liberal left wants to deny that, wants to assert some fantasy of escape from it and enact a politics that attempts to escape from it, but what's this only actually reinforces it as it must. And then you have this extraction, uh, petrocapitalism, this uh, the, the fixed regimes of capital all around the world, which are claiming instead ownership over annihilation and finding through the conscious drive towards annihilation meaning. And that is a thing that they have over the level left and that will help them. I mean, it doesn't, the thing that must be stressed is that this contest, who's going to win is functionally meaningless because it cannot be won by either side. And it is the fighting of it that turns the screw of history into the ground. But in terms of recruiting people into it, the advantage that the right formation has is it does offer a genuine fantasy of cathartic uh, apotheosis within politics. Whereas the left liberal vision insists on denial and sublimation of what we really know, of our real feelings, and the continued enacting of a fantasy politics that requires, you know, a certain set of speech and a certain set of, uh, of virtue ethics that are meant to, meant to drive us towards a expanded vision of humanity, but in reality just end up uh, acting as uh, weapons that we wield against each other and ourselves due to our deep self-loathing and our inability to detach uh, from enacting our own destruction. The right alternative, though, the irrationalist push says, no, through the process of accepting all of our basest, darkest urges and turning them into virtues and willing ourselves towards describing an annihilation as our goal. Even if we're going to be blown up by the same 
impersonal forces of history that are going to chew us up regardless of who's in power as it trades back and forth. Our engagement in politics is genuinely cathartic, genuinely liberatory in a way that the left, the liberal left, can't be. But both of them assume at base that the current order is doomed and uh, inextricable. Doomed and fixed. And the challenge is to resist the despair and self-loathing on the one hand or the... Uh, the cathartic nihilism on the other and insist on denying yourself those, those uh, packets of psychic energy and instead coming to terms with the impossibility of politics at the current moment and the necessity of uh, any real politics meaning a break, a break with uh, consent, the, 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 the giving over of consent, resistance, basically, like real resistance. And that is the thing that all above-ground politics assumes as impossible, is meaningful resistance, because that means meaningful danger. And no... Conscious politics can absorb, can process that because everyone who is into politics is in it for pleasure. Individual pleasure. The despair of the end of history. The despair of the end of politics. Because there is nothing inextricable and, and, and inevitable about what exists if people stopped consenting, if they resisted. I mean, that sounds vacuously uh, uh, obvious, and yes, it is, but it's also a, a reality that cannot be touched by given uh, political language. That is why real politics is occurring right now. It is occurring outside of politics as we recognize it. I mean, I say this mostly to myself to prevent, to talk myself out of indulging in the, uh, the orb pondering and, and surrendering to the, uh, a, uh, a discursive structure within politics that, to invest in, which I did, was for a long time. And, and now I'm kind of like, like, this is basically like methadone for me. 
I should get a cabinet of curiosities like old Rudolph II. I got a few things, but they're not that interesting. Like, my cabinet of curiosities is like this guy. There we go. Yes, I have a Funko Pop. No, I did not buy it. Chris got this for me because he knows that I enjoy Muncher as a, as a meme and as a character. This is Muncher. So yeah, I don't have unicorn horns. I don't have uh, I don't have grimoires with like uh, the the devil's home address in it. All that kind of cool stuff. Uh, this was a gift from uh, uh, from my wife because uh, when I was a kid, uh, the California raisins were big. And they released uh, in at Hardee's. That's what Carl's Jr. is called, uh, east of the Mississippi. They had a promotion where you could get one of these guys with your meal. And I, uh, at that time, I was in elementary school, and I was playing the saxophone in band. I was very bad at it. I couldn't read uh, sheet music, and so I ended up quitting because uh, I'm dumb. But I really wanted this guy. I wanted the saxophone playing Raisin. Uh, and I kept bugging my parents to take me to Hardee's. And one day they finally did it. And I was so excited that I have one of those, you know, I only have a few, like, really embedded memories of being a kid, a little kid. But one of them is me in line at the Hardee's doing a little saxophone, like, in my hand, like a like air saxophone like moving my legs because I was so excited about getting this goddamn California raisin. And then we get there to the counter. We order the food and they say, can we get a raisin? They're like, nope, that's only for breakfast. Who's going to Hardee's for breakfast? So I never got it. I never got it. I told that story to Amber and then she got me this guy. So this is my, this is, this is what I have instead of all that cool shit. Rudolph, had. I should meet some alchemists though. I should I should find some alchemists. They've got to be some. I'm in I'm in uh I'm in California after all. There's got to be some alchemists around here. Somebody brewing a big pot of piss. I just, it can't be anything having to do with computers. No one is being liberated by computers. There is no techno horizon of salvation for the human race. That is, that is a chimera. That is a fantasy. That is, that is, uh, that is a literal trap, uh, set by the devil. <laughs> Technology must be suborned. It cannot be unleashed. I mean, it's already unleashed. Anybody saying like, oh, we need to unleash it more, they don't understand. It's as unleashed as it can get because we are at the stage where 
If a thing can be thought of, it will be, and it will be invented, and it will be then applied. We are at the mercy of technology. It does not, we do not get to decide. We, we, have, a, we have an algorithmically generated social structure right now. And it is a question whether any human formation can truly master technology to a human purpose. I mean, that we can is the dream of humanism. It's the dream of, you know, the, the entire human tradition. And a lot of those right-wingers, the, the, the esoteric ones specifically, uh, the neo-reactionary types, uh, their starting premise is that they can't. That can't happen. That, that we are and always will be enslaved to our technology. And so we should then embrace it rather than try to deny it. But that is a surrender that I don't think needs to be made. I, th I think it is, it is a, a failure of, of, the, uh, of the imagination and the heart it is it is failing the test that we are all put to to live on while living on this earth and i do think that there is some degree to which our lives on earth are are a trial uh but i do not think it is to test our worthiness to ascend to heaven or whatever all of our inputs are building a knowledge that is applied elsewhere, another place, another time. And so the judgment that we think adheres to our actions is not applicable. It, it doesn't stick. So I think we are all saved at the end of the day. But that very fact, the fact that we are all saved, is exactly what gives us the necessity of, of acting uh, for the good. Someone wants to know what save means. I don't really know. Uh, it's just a feeling that I have. I don't. I think that it is not a individual experience. It is just a phenomenon, a general phenomenon of uh, recognition and reconciliation, the form of which I could not even begin to imagine. All right, talk next week. Peace.